Section 22 of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Ken Campbell. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 22 Behind the Bars. In the whirl and excitement following the startling outcry from the flats, all Fort Frayne was speedily involved. The guard came rushing through the night, Corporal Shannon stumbling over a prostrate form. The sentry on number six gagged and bound. The steward shouted from the hospital porch that Eagle Wing, the prisoner patient, had escaped through the rear window, despite its height above the sloping ground. A little ladder borrowed from the quartermaster's corral was found a moment later. An Indian pony saddled Sioux fashion was caught riding riderless towards the trader's back gate his horsehair bridle torn halfway from his shaggy head. Sergeant Crabb, waiting for no orders from Major, no sooner heard that Moreau was gone than he rushed his stable guard to the saddle-room, and in fifteen minutes had not only his own squad, but half a dozen casual troopers circling the post in search of the trail, and in less than half an hour was hot in chase of two fleeing horsemen, dimly seen ahead through the starlight across the snowy wastes. That snowfall was the Sioux's undoing. Without it, the trail would have been invisible at night. With it, the pursued were well-nigh hopeless from the start. Precious time had been lost in circling far out south of the post before making for the ford. Whither Crabb's instinct set him at once to the end that he and two of his fellows plowed through the foaming waters barely five hundred yards behind the chase, and as they rode vehemently onward through the starlight, straining every nerve, they heard nothing of the happenings about the Foster's doorway, where by this time post-commander, post-surgeon, post-quartermaster, and acting post-adjutant, post-ordinance quartermaster, and commissary sergeants, Many of the post guard and most of the post laundresses had gathered, some silent, anxious, and bewildered, some excitingly babbling, while within the sergeant's docile, Esther Dade, very pale and somewhat out of breath, was trying with quiet self-possession to answer the myriad questions poured at her, while Dr. Waller was ministering to the dazed and moaning sentry, and in an adjoining tenement a little group had gathered about an unconscious form, Someone had sent for Mrs. Hay, who was silently, tearfully chapping the lip and almost lifeless hand of a girl in Indian garb. The cloak and skirts of civilization had been found beneath the window of the deserted room, and were exhibited as a means of bringing to his senses a much bewildered major, whose first words on entering the hut gave rise to wonderment in the eyes of most of his hearers, and to an impulsive reply from the lips of Mrs. Hay. I warned the general this girl would play us some Indian trick, but he ordered her release, said Flint, and with a wrathful emphasis came the answer. The general warned you this girl would play a trick, and thanks to no one but you she's done it. Then rising and stepping aside, the long-suffering woman revealed the pallid, senseless face, not of the little Indian maid, her shrinking charge and guest, but of the niece she loved and had lived and lied for many and trying years. Nanette Lafleur, a long-lost sister's only child. So Blake knew he was talking about that keen November morning among the pines at Bear Cliff. He had unearthed an almost forgotten legend of old Fort Laramie. 
but the amaze and discomfiture of the temporary post commander turned this night of thanksgiving so far as he was concerned into something purgatorial sight of a sentry bound and gagged and bleeding the discovery of the latter and of the escape of the prisoner for whom he was accountable had filled him with dismay yet for the moment failed to stagger his indomitable self-esteem there had been a plot of course and the instant impulse of his soul was to fix the blame on others and to free himself an indian trick of course and who but the little indian maid with the traitor's gates could be the instrument through her of course the conspirators about the post had been enabled to act she was the general's protege not his and the general must shoulder the blame even when flint saw nanette self-convicted through her very garb and her presence at the scene of the final struggle even when assured it was she and not the little ogalala girl who had been caught in the act that the later in fact had never left the traitor's house his disproportioned mind refused to grasp the situation nanette he declared with pallid face must have been made a victim nothing could have been farther from her thoughts than complicity in the escape of eagle wing she had every reason to desire his restoration to health strength and to the fostering care of the good and charitable body of the christian people interested in his behalf all this would be endangered by his attempt to rejoin the warriors on the warpath the major ordered the instant arrest of the sentry stationed at the door of the hospital room shut out by the major's own act from all possibility of seeing what was going on within he ordered under arrest the corporal of the relief on post for presumable complicity and mindful of a famous case of ethiopian skill then new in the public mind demanded of dr waller that he say in so many words that the gag and wrist thongs on the prostate sentry had not been self-applied Waller impassionately pointed to the huge lump at the base of the sufferer's skull. Gag and bounds he might have so placed after much assiduous practice, said he, but no man living could hit himself such a blow at the back of the head. Who could have done it then? asked Flint. It was inconceivable to Waller's mind that any one of the soldiery could have been tempted to such perfidy for an Indian's sake. There was not at the moment an Indian scout or soldier at the post, or an Indian warrior, not a prisoner unaccounted for there had been half-breeds hanging around the store prior to the final escapade of pete and graypod but these had realized their unpopularity after the battle on the elk and had departed for other climes graypod was still under guard pete was still at large perchance with straber's braves there was not another man about the traitor's place whom flint or others could suspect yet the sergeant of the guard searching cautiously with his lantern about post of number six had come upon some suggestive signs the snow was trampled and bloody about the place where the soldier fell and there were here and there the tracks of moccasined feet those of a young woman or child going at speed toward the hospital running probably and followed close by a moccasined man then those of the man alone were sprinting down the bluff southeastward over the flat some distance south of the foster's doorway and up the opposite bluff to a point where four ponies shoeless had been huddled for as much perhaps as a half an hour then all four had come scampering down close together in the space below the hospital not fifty yards from where the sentry fell and the moccasined feet of a man and woman had scurried down the bluff from the hospital window to meet them west of foster's shanty then there had been confusion trouble of some kind 
One pony, pursued a short distance, had broken away. The others had gone pounding out southeastward up the slope and out over the uplands, then down again in a wide sweep through the valley of the Little Rouvelette, and along the low bench southwest of the fort, crossing the Rock Springs Road and striking further on diagonally the Rollins Trail, where Crabb and his fellows had found it and followed. But all this took hours of time, and meanwhile, only half revived, Nanette had been gently, pittingly borne away to a souring woman's home, for at last it was found, through the thick and lustrous hair, that she too had been struck a harsh and cruel blow, that one reason probably why she had been able to oppose no stouter resistance to so slender a girl as Esther Dade was that she was already half-dazed through the stroke of some blunt, heavy weapon wielded probably by him. She was risking all to save. Meantime, the Major had been pursuing his investigations. Schmidt, the soldier sentry in front of Moreau's door, a simple-hearted Teuton of irreproachable character, tearfully protested against his incarceration. He had obeyed his orders to the letter. The Major himself had brought the lady to the hospital and showed her in. The door that had been open, permitting the sentry constant sight of his prisoner, had been closed by the commanding officer himself. Therefore, it was not for him, a private soldier, to presume to reopen it. The major said to the lady he would return for her soon after ten, and the lady smilingly, Schmidt did not say how smilingly, how bewitchingly smilingly, but the major needed no reminder, thanked him, and said by that time she would be ready. In a few minutes she came out, saying, doubtless with the same bewitching smile, she would have to run over home for something, and she was gone nearly half an hour. And all that time the door was open, the prisoner on the bed in his blankets, the lamp brightly burning. It was near tattoo when she returned, with some things under her cloak, and she was breathing quick and seemed hurried and shut the door after thanking him, and he saw no more of her for fifteen minutes. When the door opened and out she came, the same cloak around her, yet she looked different somehow and must have tiptoed, for he didn't hear her heels as he had before. She didn't seem quite so tall either, and that was all, for he never knew anything more about it till the steward came running to tell of the escape. So Schmidt could throw but little light on the situation, save to Flint himself, who did not then see fit to say to any one that at no time it was communicated that Miss Flower should be allowed to go and come unattended. In doing so, she had deluded some beside the sentry. It was late in the night when Number 6 regained his senses and could tell his tale, which was even more damaging. Quite early in the evening, so he said, as early as nine o'clock he was under the hospital corner, listening to the music further up along the bluff. A lady came from the south of the building as though she were going down to Sudstown. Miss Foster had gone down not long before, and Hogan with a lantern and two officers' ladies. But this one came all alone and spoke to him pleasant-like, and said she was so sorry he couldn't be at the dance. She had been seeing the sick and wounded in the hospital, she said, and was going to bring some wine and jellies. If he didn't mind, she'd take the path around the quartermaster's storehouse outside, as she was going to Mr. Hayes and didn't care to go through by the guardhouse. So Six let her go, as he had no orders again it, even though it dawned on him that this must be the young lady that had been carried off by the Sioux. That made him think a bit, he said, and when she came back with a basket nicely covered with a white napkin, 
She made him take a big chicken sandwich. Sure, I didn't know how to refuse the lady until she poured me out a big tumbler of wine. Wine, she said. She was taking it to Sergeant Briggs and Corporal Turner that was shot at the elk, and she couldn't bear to see me all alone out there in the cold. But Six said he dasn't take the wine. He got six months blind once for a similar solecism, and mindful of the Major's warning, this was diplomatic, Six swore he had sworn off and had to refuse the repeated requests of the lady. He suspicioned her, he said, because she was so persistent. Then she laughed and said good night and went on to the hospital. What became of the wine she had poured out? This from the grim and hitherto silent doctor seated by the bedside. She must have tossed it out or drunk it herself, perhaps. Six didn't know. Certainly no trace of it could be found in the snow. Then nothing happened for as much as twenty minutes or so, and he was over toward the south end of his post, but facing towards the hospital when she came again down the steps, and this time handed him some cake and told him he was a good soldier not to drink even wine, and asked him what were the lights away across the plat, and he couldn't see any, and was following her pointing finger and staring, and then all of a sudden he saw a million lights dancing, and stars and bombs, and that was all he knew till they began talking to him here in the hospital. Something had hit him from behind, but he couldn't tell what. Flint's nerve was failing him. For here was confirmation of the general's theory, but there was worse to come, and more of it. Miss McGrath, domestic at the traders, had told a tale that had reached the ears of Mistress McGann, and twas the latter that bade the major summon the girl and demanded of her what it was that she had seen and heard concerning Crapo, and the lady occupant on the second floor front at the trader's home. Then it was that the major heard what others had earlier conjectured, that there had been clandestine meetings, whispered conferences, and the like, within the first week of the lovely niece's coming to Fort Frayne. That note had been fetched and carried by Crapo, as well as Pete, that Miss Flower was either a son of bullist or a good imitation of one, as on two occasions the maid had peeked and seen her downstairs at the back door in the dead hours of the night, or the very early morning that was when she first came. Then, since the recapture, Miss McGrath felt confident that though never again detected downstairs, Miss Flower had been out at night, as Miss McGrath believed her to have been the night. When was it? When little Kennedy had his scrab with the Sous, the boys do be all talking about the night. In fact, that Straber's band slipped away from the plat. Ray's troop followed at dawn. Question is how it was possible for Miss Flower to get out without coming downstairs. Miss McGrath said she wasn't good at monkey shines herself, but women that could ride straddle-wise were capable of climbs more difficult than that which the vine trellis afforded from the porch floor to the porch roof. Miss McGrath hadn't been spying, of course, because her room was at the back of the house, beyond the kitchen. But how did the little heel tracks get on the veranda roof, the road dust on the matting under the window, the vine twigs in that quair made skirt never worn by day? That Miss Flower could and did ride a straddle, and ride admirably when found with the Sioux at Bear Cliff. Everybody at Frayne well knew by this time that she had so ridden at Fort Frayne was known to no officer or lady of the garrison then present, but believed by Miss McGrath because of certain inexpressibles of the same material with the quay-made skirt, both found dusty and somewhat bedraggled. The morning Captain Blake was having his chase after the Indians, 
and Miss Flowers was so wild, excited, like all this and more did Miss McGrath reveal before being permitted to return to the sanctity of her chamber, and Flint felt the ground sinking beneath his feet. It might even be alleged of him now that he had conveyed at the escape of this most dangerous and desperate character, this Indian leader, of whom example, prompt and sharp, would certainly have been made, unless a general at the ends of justice were defeated. But what stung the major most of all was that he had been fairly victimized, hoodwinked, cajoled, wheedled, flattered into this wretched predicament, all through the wiles and graces of a woman. No one knew it, whatever might be suspected, but Nanette had bewitched him quite as much as Miss Avivs from the East had persuaded and misled. And so it was, with a hardened and resentful heart, that the Major sought her on the morrow. The general and the commanders afield would soon be coming home. Such Indians as they had not rounded up and captured were scattered far and wide. Campaign was over. Now for the disposition of the prisoners. It was to tell Miss Hayward Nanette, especially Nanette, why the sentries were re-established about their home, and that, though he would not place the traitor's niece within a garrison cell, he should hold her prisoner beneath the traitor's roof to await the action of superior authority on the grievous charges lodged at her door. She was able to be up, said Miss McGrath, not only up, but down, down in the breakfast room, looking blighter and more like herself than she had been since she was brought home. "'Say the Major Flint desires to see her and Miss Hay,' said Flint, with majesty of mien, as, followed by two of his officers, he was shown into the trader's parlor. And presently they came, Miss Hay pale and souring, Miss Flower pale, perhaps, but triumphantly defiant. The one sat and covered her face with her hands and listened to the Major's few words, cold, stern, and accusing. The other looked squarely at him, with fearless, glittering eyes. "'You may order what you like as far as I am concerned,' was the utterly reckless answer of the girl. "'I don't care what you do now that I know he's safe, free, and that you will never lay hands on him again.' "'That's where you're in error, Miss Flower,' was the Major's calm, cold-blooded, yet rejoiceful reply. "'It was for this indeed that he had come. "'Ralph Moreau was run down by my men soon after midnight, and he's now behind bars.'" End of chapter 22 Recorded by Ken Campbell.